Determining whether a physician's conduct should be reviewed under peer review only or compliance legal only or jointly by both peer review and compliance and legal is a challenging subject. In this episode, I will discuss some specific examples to help delineate between the two review mechanisms. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado... I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. This episode is going to piggyback on the episode issued September 21st of 2022 regarding the interplay between peer review and compliance and legal review of physician conduct. And there are so many responses that I received for the first episode. So if you have not reviewed the uh, the, the first episode, so I'll call that part one of the interplay between peer review and compliance, including compliance under the Stark Law and a kickback statute and false claims, I would strongly encourage you to review the part one first. Again, that was issued on September the 21st, 2022, uh, before listening to this episode. This episode, I'm, I'm intending to go through some specific examples and try to create some framework if you are in-house counsel, compliance officer, or somebody in the medical staff office. Office, trying to determine whether an issue is legal compliance or strictly peer review. And so I'm going to try to give some, like I said, some specific examples. So let's start off first off. As I indicated in the first episode, peer review is primarily focused on quality. It's the quality of the physician's medical performance to make sure that the performance is consistent with the community standards based upon that physician's specialty. And so what I would call ordinary quality review, then that should fall under the domain of peer review. So by way of example, if there's a discussion between two physicians regarding the outcome of a particular surgical procedure, and let's say that well, an expected outcome occurred, but that expected outcome, the likelihood of that expected outcome was a small percentage, then there probably would need to be some peer review as to why that expected expected, although very unlikely, event occurred. And so if that's a discussion, it could even be a discussion at some type of meeting of the medical staff or a department, that would be strictly peer review and would not have to raise to the level of involving the legal department or the compliance department. 
However, if the issue is severe quality or repeated severe quality, and for sure, it should be a peer review medical staff domain because the medical staff is required to review the quality outcomes of the physicians on its medical staff. But if it rises to the level of severe quality, then I would say that that should also be a compliance issue. And as I'll discuss later in this episode, there are some reasons why the government does believe, and this is a premise, the government believes that if care is not medically necessary or was not reasonable, then submitting the claim for that care is a false claim. If services were rendered, but they were not deemed to be reasonable and necessary, and here I'm focusing on the word reasonable, then the government can make a claim that by submitting the request for reimbursement for that procedure would be a false claim. Now I'm going to drop the F-bomb, fraud. If the issue involving the physician's conduct is fraud, then for sure that's a legal compliance issue and may not rise to the level of peer review. And I'll give you one example. When I was in-house, I I had one case. And the case actually dealt with a physician's conduct, and the the F-bomb was was tossed around back and forth as to whether or not this physician conducted his practice in a fraudulent manner. And in fact, I was asked the question uh, whether or not I believed, and again, here I was operating in the capacity as a compliance officer, whether or not I believed a physician was a fraudulent physician. And I responded that I could not put that label on a physician to classify an individual as being a fraudulent individual, although I could look at conduct and the way the physician build and perform the medical services to determine whether or not the performance of the medical services rose to the level of being fraud and abuse. Again, to quickly recap, if it's just strictly what I would call in air quotes, normal quality, that's probably the peer review domain. If it's considered fraud, then that is considered to be more in the compliance legal area. If it's severe quality issues, it could be both peer review as well as compliance legal. So now I'm going to get into some specific examples. So the first category would be that services were billed, but the services were not rendered. So let's say that the physician billed consistently for a hospital inpatient visit at a level three, but didn't show up uh, at the hospital. So clearly documented that a service was rendered, but not billed. Or let's say that you documented a a cataract catheterization, uh, but did not perform that cataract catheterization. Or you documented that a, a cataract procedure occurred, but you did not perform that procedure. Well, that to me, those type of issues where services were not rendered but billed strictly fall in the fraud category and therefore would be the domain of the legal and compliance department for review and possibly uh, self-disclosure. So the next category is falsifying a medical record or medical necessity in a medical record or even falsifying a medical certification. So let's say that a physician prescribes opioids or controlled substances to patients that there's not a justifiable medical reason for the ordering of the opioids or controlled substances. Or a physician falsely certifies a homebound status for a home health agency. 
or a cataract catheterization. And this is actual a case or a few cases uh, along with car- cardiac catheterizations that a physician performed a cataract catheterization, but arguably physicians who would perform that same type of service would say that the patient did not meet the parameters for a cataract catheterization to be performed. So that could be patients that had a cataract catheterization performed where arguably one was not medically necessary. So the physician put the patient through that procedure when it may not have been medically necessary. Again, there are cases like that. And some people would say, wow, physicians would never, ever do that. Well, you know, sometimes it does happen or it's alleged that has happened and there have been a few settlements. Or let's say that, and this is a case that I was directly involved with, that a physician was documenting that a patient needed to have cataract uh, procedures. And when the patient showed up for registration, indicated to the registration personnel that uh, the doctor told them to tell the registration people that they had a cataract. Uh, but when when they were pressed on it, the patient said, well, no, I really don't have a cataract. But the doctor told me that the only way for this to be reimbursed by my insurance company or Medicare was for me to say that I had a cataract when really all the patient wanted was an enhanced interocular lens. So it was a non-covered procedure. So in those cases, I would say, you know, basically because patients were being put through a medical procedure that they did not need in some cases, that that can be both a compliance concern as well as a peer review concern related to that physician. The next example is upcoding, and a lot of times we as healthcare attorneys just throw out that word upcoding, and we assume everybody knows what it is, uh, but let me give you a few examples. I'll say that uh, the physician documented, coded, and billed for a complex procedure when only a routine procedure was actually administered, or that the physician included a modifier that a distinct additional service was provided on that day when the physician did not provide a distinct additional service. Or let's say that the physician, I'm going to say, saw a patient, and so there was a face-to-face encounter with a patient on the day of chemotherapy. So let's say the medical oncologist sees a patient on the day of chemotherapy and basically exchanges pleasantries and and asks how the patient is doing. Uh, But the primary purpose of that day was chemotherapy. Well, if there's not a separate and distinct additional reason for a separate E&M encounter, then an E&M encounter probably should not be billed on that day of chemotherapy or some other type of infusion. Again, that's a medical oncology example. And even on the inpatient technical side of billing for hospitals, uh, because of the DRGs, there could be a DRG if a patient has one or more comorbid conditions or complications that could raise the DRG level to a mid-tier DRG, or if they have one or more major comorbid conditions or complications, then that would relegate the DRG to the highest tier. So let's say that you have a patient that's in the hospital and has pneumonia and has 23 additional diagnoses. So these are other comorbid conditions that the physician is reviewing and managing when that patient is an inpatient. If one of those 23, so 22 would just be considered to be a a general comorbid condition 
complication or a complication if only one of the 23 was a major comorbid condition or a complication then that raises that drg to the highest tier so an upcoding could occur as if, if a physician understanding the billing on the on the hospital side documents one major comorbid condition or complication in order to increase the reimbursement for the hospital, then that could be deemed to be upcoding. And for the most part, I would say that this is a compliance issue only, not necessarily a peer review issue, because the patients involved did not receive any additional unwanted treatment and then really the issue is between the payer and here let's say it's Medicare or Medicaid and the billing hospital uh, so those would be ones that I would say that should be under the domain of the compliance and legal department and not necessarily the medical staff peer review Next, I'm going to go into poor quality of care. And this has been a champion of the government for quite some time, where the government's position has been that if you do not provide quality of care, that makes the claim for reimbursement from Medicare or Medicaid unnecessary. And so therefore, submitting a claim for that test procedure encounter would be a false claim. And I remember one conference, uh, an assistant U.S. attorney came up to the podium and just advised the entire audience. He was going to show some very graphic pictures. And he continued to show pictures where patients had bed sores, these huge bed sores, and bones were sticking out of the bed sores. And this assistant U.S. attorney basically said that this nursing home billed for those patient stays. And he said that because the nursing home was not taking care of the patient sufficiently enough in order to prevent those ulcers, and especially if you have bones sticking out of the ulcers, the position of the government was that any claim for those services, even though the patient was occupying a bed in the nursing home, was receiving three square meals that day in the nursing home, the government's position was that the nursing home should not have billed the government because the care that was provided was not usual reasonable and necessary and therefore was a false claim. So in, in this context, if there's poor quality of care, I would say that that should be under the domain of both the compliance legal department as well as the medical staff peer review. So next I'm going to go into a category that I title unanticipated outcomes. So let's say we have an orthopedic procedure and during the middle of the procedure, the patient expires the likelihood of a patient expiring from that procedure, let's say it's a knee replacement, is extremely, extremely low. So it's unanticipated that because of the patient's condition that the patient would have died from that knee replacement procedure. In that context, I would say we've got a quality of care issue, and that should be under the domain of both compliance and peer review. I'm going to tweak it just a little bit. You know, in that one case, I would say this is an unanticipated outcome. But let's assume that we have a physician, and by looking at the physician's performance, we have a series or a large number of low expectancy outcomes. So when you take a look at the expected outcomes from this procedure, that there, the physician was experiencing a lot of patients who 
had some of these low expectancy outcomes. And I would say that if, if, there's a, if there is a, a large number, then that for sure it's a peer review issue. But I'm not really certain that that should raise to the level of a compliance legal matter if these are all you know, expected outcomes. And we received from the patient, patient consent before the patient went into the procedure, then I would say that in in that context, that's probably going to be peer review. Now, obviously, the higher the frequency, the more likely it could become a compliance legal matter. But otherwise, I would say that that's peer review. Next category is inappropriate supervision. Let's say that we have a cardiac treatment center where the physician is not providing the on-site supervision for the cardiac treatment center. Or let's say that we have a, an imaging department where we have imaging with contrast and the supervising physician or radiologist is not on-site uh, when the contrast is provided. Now, in that context, for sure, I believe we have a compliance legal issue because those services should not be billed to the payer. But depending upon the frequency of the unsupervised or inappropriate supervision, it could become a peer review matter, especially if it's if it's it's continuous or numerous times, and it probably should become a peer review matter. But if it's uh, like, let's say, for example, that a physician did not believe that contrast was going to be provided during one imaging encounter and left for lunch early, then I wouldn't believe that that would rise to the level of a peer review. I mean, it can go through the peer review process. And anytime I say peer review, I'm talking like a, a big major peer review. It should not rise to the level of a major peer review issue, but definitely should be a legal compliance issue because of the billing component. The next example is HIPAA, so a privacy or security breach. I would say that this is both a quality uh, medical staff membership obligation as well as a compliance issue. So that could be both. Next example is EMTALA. So let's say that we have an orthopedic surgeon that refuses to come in, even though the physician's on schedule, that physician is the on-call physician. Because the physician did not come in, there could be some compromising medical outcomes for the patient, or the patient may have to have been transferred to another hospital. So I would say that that should become a peer review issue, but also it is a legal compliance issue because of the billing aspect, as well as a potential EMTALA violation does become an event for which the hospital, either the legal department or the compliance department will need to uh, respond to if it is reported to the government or to the state uh, health agency. Next category is clinical research. There could be a billing component with clinical research that the research is not being billed appropriately. So if this is a clinical research procedure that's being performed and would not normally be performed for that patient's medical condition, but the hospital or the physician still bills for that, then that would be inappropriate and would become a billing issue. So that's a compliance legal issue. There also could be some patient protection issues in clinical research. So I would say with clinical research, it could be both compliance as well as peer review. The next category is kickbacks. And if these are pervasive or overt, 
then I do believe that that impacts quality of care because then the dollars are impacting the physician's decision regarding the treatment of the patient. So that could be a peer review issue, but for sure, any type of kickbacks, if there's intent to induce that physician's referrals or the ordering of procedures for a patient, that's a legal compliance issue. And lastly, dealing with the violation of the Stark Law. Uh, the Stark Law, I would say, is more of a legal compliance issue and not necessarily the medical staff. Uh, because if I have previously indicated on uh, Stark Integrity, the podcast, the Stark Law is a billing statute. So if the financial arrangements with the referring physicians do not align with a, an exception under the Stark Law, that creates a billing problem. And therefore, it's a legal compliance issue, not necessarily a peer review issue for the medical staff. So that brings us to the three Captain Integrity Punch Points for this episode. Captain Integrity Punch Point number one is quality can be both a peer review as well as a legal compliance issue depending upon the severity. The more severe it is, the more likely that the issue is a legal compliance issue, but otherwise quality should be the domain and is the domain of the medical staff peer review process. Captain Integrity Punch Point number two fraud issues that impact the hospital or physician's billing is usually the exclusive domain of the legal compliance department, unless we obviously bleed over into some of the other issues that we've been talking about dealing with quality of care that could impact the supporting of the claim build. And Captain Integrity Punch Point number three, and I think I emphasized this in part one, that when issues are brought forward either through the MIDAS reporting process, the compliance hotline, or the medical staff process, someone who is taking in those issues or concerns need to assess those issues and concerns to see whether or not the issue is medical staff peer review, whether it's legal compliance, or it's both. And a lot of times, as you sense by this episode, it can be both, both the domain of the medical staff peer review process, as well as a concern for the legal and compliance department of the hospital. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.